First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 18. For as much as ye know that ye are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. There are certain doctrines in your Bible that are just so big that they cannot be defined with just one word. For example, the doctrine of God, theology proper. You can't describe God with just one name or one attribute. God is so vast, He requires a vocabulary all of His own. So we could spend tonight and we could talk about the goodness of God till it's time to go home and have said nothing about the knowledge of God. We could talk about the knowledge of God, the omniscience of God, and, and say nothing about the power of God. It's just too big. You can't fit it all into one word. The doctrine of salvation. When God saved you, He did so many things in you and for you, you just don't have a word for it all. The word say, good word. It's a Bible word, but it's not a big enough word to capture every truth that is embedded in your salvation. So we come up with words like, um, like justified. Now when you justify yourself, what you're trying to do is excuse yourself for something that you did wrong. You're trying to offer an excuse for why you did what you did. That's not the Bible idea of justification. Justification is a legal term. It is the legal aspect of salvation. It is to declare righteous. To justify is to declare someone not guilty, even if that person is guilty. But as far as the law is concerned, the accused is innocent and is given a new standing before God, and God has taken your sins and placed them on Jesus. He has taken His righteousness, placed it on you, and when God sees you in Christ, He sees the righteousness of His Son, and the word we use to describe that is justification. It's a great word, it's a great word. Whenever I think of that doctrine, I'm not preaching on this tonight, but I always think of that man in England who purchased a Rolls Royce, saved his money for years, and bought this Rolls Royce, and he wanted to tour Europe in his Rolls Royce and so he had it placed on a ferry and crossed the English Channel and he was driving through France and the Rolls Royce broke down on the side of the road. And so he sent a cable back to the Rolls Royce company in England and they flew a mechanic to France and got the car running again. And he just knew that when he got back home that the bill for that would be enormous. So when he got back home, he wrote a letter to the Rolls-Royce company explaining what happened and requesting a bill. And the Rolls-Royce company sent a letter back to him and said, Dear sir, thank you for your letter. But you need to know that we have no record in our files of any Rolls-Royce that has ever broken down at any place, any time, for any reason. 
Well, that's what justification is. You may fall, you may break down, you may run into the ditch. God says, that's a child of mine and I have no remembrance of his past. It is a great doctrine. But justification doesn't say anything about propitiation. The word is not as familiar as justification, but propitiation means to turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. When we talk about Christ is our propitiation, we are saying that when Jesus died on the cross, that all the sins, all the sins of the world was poured out on him. And God the Father judged him as though he were us, as though he were this every sinner. And he became sin for us and he took the wrath of God for my sin. When Isaiah 53 says that he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied, the father is not happy to see his son suffer, but he is satisfied with the sufferings of his son. That's a great doctrine. But that doesn't say anything about redemption. The word redemption is to buy back with a purchase price. It is to purchase something back like purchasing a piece of property or, or, or we would think about buying a slave and setting him free. So, so they're great words and, and justification doesn't say anything about the price of our salvation. It talks about our standing before God. And propitiation, it doesn't say anything about our standing before God, but it speaks of the satisfaction of the wrath of God. And redemption doesn't deal with the justice or the legal aspect. It deals with the price that was paid. So what I'm trying to say to you is that being saved, it's just too big. You just, you just can't put it all in one word. You need a library to describe everything God did when he saved us. And the word that Peter uses in our text is the word redeemed. Are redeemed, not by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Now, it's a familiar passage. You know those verses well. You've got to memorize. And I'm not going to preach tonight so much on the doctrine of redemption. But I read these verses tonight because I want to show you something about the God of our redemption in these verses. And I want you to notice tonight that verse 17 Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21 is all one long sentence. In punctuation, the last period is at the end of verse number 16. Do you see it there? The next period comes at the end of verse number 21. It is a very long sentence. And in that sentence, he tells us what does not redeem us, verse number 18. He tells us about the blood that does redeem us, verse number 19. He tells us that it was planned way back before, that's verse 20. And he tells us that the purchasing of our redemption was sealed by the resurrection, that's verse 21. And it is all one long sentence. So when you come to the end of the sentence, at the end of verse 21, here is his conclusion to this sentence. That your faith and hope might be in God. This long sentence on the great doctrine of redemption. He says the result of it. The the end of it. The aim of it. The blessed assurance of this redemption. Is so that you and I can have faith and hope in God. Now that would be really relevant to the people that he's writing to. 
I'm not going to deal with the suffering that they're under, but you know they're living under the thumb of Nero. Suffering saints suffer or suffering 18 times in the book of First Peter. And these are believers that are going through dark valleys and, and through hard trials. And, and sometimes when life is pressing you down, it can cause you to doubt God. In fact, you might come in this room tonight overwhelmed, bewildered, whatever it might be with life. And when you are discouraged, when you are depressed, when you are suffering in whatever way, you find it hard to trust God. And troubles have a way of consuming our mind so that I think only about the suffering I'm going through and not the salvation that I have in Christ. And here's what Peter does in First Peter. He talks about suffering, but he talks about salvation just as much. Yeah, let's talk about the trouble we're going through, but don't forget, let's talk about what God has done in our life. I know that it's hard times but he still has saved us we are still his child so don't let the sufferings and the trials and the hardships rob you of your joy of salvation so he's talking about redemption and he says the end result of our redemption is that you can trust God and the reason you can trust God is because implied in this text are three truths about God And if you could get these three truths that are embedded in the text, out of the text and embedded in your heart, then no matter what tomorrow or next Tuesday brings to your life, you can face it with trust in Him. Now as quickly as I can, here's the three things that Peter tells us about God. The first thing that Peter wants us to know in this text is that God knows. So where do you find that? Is in verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now don't get scared of the word foreordained. That's not a Calvinist word. It's actually a Bible word. And what the word is telling you, it is something about the foreknowledge of God. That verse is simply telling you that the plan of redemption was planned before the world began. That before there was a Genesis 1-1, there was a John 3-16 in the mind of God. The word foreknowledge, it means to know something beforehand. Foreordain means to make a decision based upon that knowledge. It is to determine a course of action based on what you know is going to happen before it happens. So what verse 20 is simply telling us, that the cross, the Son of God dying, the resurrection, the gospel, all of that was no accident. It was God knowing exactly what He was going to do. It is a statement about something that God New. The word that the theologians would use is the word omniscient. That simply means that God knows everything. God knows the future before it becomes the present. He knows tomorrow before tomorrow becomes today. You cannot find a beginning or an ending to the knowledge of God because God knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that's happening right now. And God knows everything that is going to happen in the future. Do you believe that? I'll take it a step further. God not only knows everything that has happened, God knows everything that's happening right now, God knows everything that is going to happen, but I would say that God knows everything that, it, that could happen if other things happen. He knows the decisions you'll make. But if you was to make other decisions, God knows what the result of those decisions would be as well. He not only knows what will actually happen, but I believe that God knows what could potentially happen in every other possible scenario. 
I've used this illustration several times, and, 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 and I'll just use it again. So we got in the car this afternoon and came over here, and, 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 and Brother James trusts my driving, and, and so we came. And we came out of the hotel, and we turned, did we turn right or left? We, we, we turned left, I think, what we did, and got on the highway, and we came here. Now, had we turned right, had we turned right, it is possible that a mile up the road, we could have gotten in an accident. But we don't know because we didn't go that way. We went left. But, but who, we would never know. But God knows. He knows everything that will happen. But God knows what could happen that won't happen. Now listen, God knew that sin would enter into the world through the disobedience of Adam. He didn't ordain that sin. He didn't cause that sin. Adam didn't have to sin. He, 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 Adam had a choice, but he knew the choice and he knew the consequence and he allows the consequence of sin to be played out in the world. And knowing that ahead of time, God planned a course of action that would plan salvation through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Adam didn't have to sin, but if he does sin, this is what I will do to redeem man from that sin. There's a text over in Revelation 13 that talks about the lamb, catch this, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I actually happen to know that the lamb was not slain at creation. The lamb was slain at Calvary 2,000 years ago. But what the verse is saying is that before creation, God knew that his son would die on a cross to save mankind from his sin. So in God's perspective, it is as good as done. He knew what men would do. He knew the punishment of sin. He, he knew uh, what he would do to save men from sin. He knew that you would sin. He knew the curse that would bring you to your life. He knew how you would respond to the gospel when you when the call came to you and he knew that when you called out to him by faith and repentance he knew that he would save you he knew all along he knew and when God knows something beforehand he can speak of it in the past tense as if it is already done now let me bring it home to you all right let, let, me, let, let me let me make it practical the verse is telling us that God already knows And it has a plan. Not just for salvation, but for your life and for mine. If the fall of man didn't catch God by surprise, then whatever trial you're going through tonight, that didn't catch Him by surprise either. And there might even be another trial on the horizon that you don't know about. But God knows about that one too. You don't know about it, so you're not making any plans for it. But God already has the plan in place. And whatever the storm is next, He's not going to have to scramble to pull you through. There'll not have to be an emergency meeting of the Godhead and say, that one really snuck up on us. What are we going to do? No. He's got a plan for your life, just like He had a remedy in place with the cross as the remedy for sin. You see, you and I live in the realm of time. We have eternity in our heart, but we live in the realm of time. And basically, we are captives of the moment. You can remember the past, but you can't go to the past, and you cannot fast forward to the future. You know, we, we can't sit in this service tonight and say, you know, it started out a little slow, so let's rewind the clock to 7 o'clock, and let's start. We, we can't do that. 
We, we can't look at tomorrow night and say, you know, tomorrow night there's five people going to get saved in the service. So let's just fast forward. Let's make it tomorrow right now and get those people saved. You can't do that. You can remember the past. You can plan for the future. But all that you can do is you can live right now in the moment. There, there are no such thing as time capsules. But God transcends time. God is not bound by right now. In fact, there was a time when there was no time called eternity past and God was there before time. God does not live in time. God lives in eternity. And what that means is that tomorrow is the same as today for Him. So He doesn't need to wait for tomorrow to get here for Him to decide what He's going to do about tomorrow. He already knows. It is, and it's not just that God sees it, but He's already over there with everything that you need for whatever trial is coming your way. If in the mind of God, the Lamb is slain from before the foundation of the world, because today, yesterday, tomorrow, it's all the same to Him, and He doesn't need to wait for it to get here to see what is going to transpire, because He's already there. He could say in Genesis, I'm already over in Revelation, and I may not know what tomorrow holds, but it's okay, because my God's already there and he's got all the grace and all the strength that I need that will sustain me for tomorrow's trials. I was traveling the other day, several, several weeks ago now, and, and I have um, a GPS map program on, on, on my phone. And um, I, I turn it on and, 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 and sometimes I, I don't need it for the directions, but, but if there's a wreck or if there's a road hazard, it will alert you. And several weeks ago, it, 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 it said something I'd never seen before. I was coming up, coming up I sixty five, and 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 that thing popped up, and and it showed me that there is a wreck ahead, several miles ahead. Now, how did that phone know that there's a wreck ahead? Yeah. Well, the only way it knew was there was somebody else right. using the same app right. that was somewhere up ahead of me. Yeah. They had been in the wreck or seen the wreck. They were letting everybody know behind them, hey, be careful, there's a wreck. As I got closer to where the wreck was supposed to be, my phone alerted me again. And this time it had two questions with an option. Clear, still there. What it's asking me, you are at the site where the wreck has been reported. Is it still there or has it been cleared out? And the reason why they were asking me that was because if there's somebody behind me coming up, right. I, could, I could punch clear or still there. Everybody behind me would know what the status was. By the time I got there, the wreck was clear. So I just punched clear on that phone. And basically what I was doing is I was saying to anybody that's behind me, Come on ahead. I'm here. Everything's cleared out. Everything looks good. There is no danger. There are no hazards. You can just come right on through. And I'm here to tell you tonight that your Father is ahead of you and everything is cleared out. And He's saying, come on, because when you get here, everything will be right. The old preacher said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Nothing ever surprised him. Nothing has ever caught him by surprise because God knows he's there. And the reason because of that, God never reacts to anything. You and I are reactionary. We don't know what to So we always react, react. If you fly, you're going to react. Because I promise you, whatever time they say it's going to leave, it's not leaving. 
And whatever time they say is going to get there, it's not going to get there. They might decide not to fly tonight. I believe with all of my heart I could run American Airlines better than whoever's running it right now. I believe I could. But we are reactionary. My plans change and I got to shift this and I got to shift that. But God never reacts because nothing ever surprises Him. And if you will think about the fall of Adam and the curse that came because of it, if you want to talk about problems, there's never been a bigger problem in the history of mankind, a bigger disaster, a more disastrous thing than the fall of Adam. And God saw the worst thing that would ever happen and said, I already have a plan that I can fix this and God had a solution before the problem. Before there was guilt, there was grace and I want you to know that whatever problem is ahead of you, he's not going to have to scramble that the last minute. He already has a plan. I don't know the worst that could happen to you, but I don't think it's going to be as bad as Genesis chapter 3. You're not going to have anything as cataclysmic as the fall of Adam coming to your life. And, and, and you look at how gracious and how wise God is for that. I say he's still gracious and wise today. God knows. God knows. Well, let me hurry, hurry. In our text, not only is it telling me that God knows, but it's telling me that God cares. Look at verse 20 again. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now think about that. It's comforting that God knows, but only if God cares. In fact, if God doesn't care, it would be better. If God didn't know. Suppose I knew that tonight your house is going to catch on fire. Somehow I had advanced the knowledge at midnight your house is going to catch on fire. That'd be good knowledge to have ahead of time. I could warn you. We, we could go ahead and call the fire department, have them ready. You get your kids out, get your pets out, get, make sure everybody's safe. Good knowledge to have, but only if I care. If I knew, well, it ain't my house. In my family, I'm, I'm gonna be in the hotel. It ain't gonna bother me a bit if so. If I know and I don't care, then that makes me a monster. It's better for me not to know if I'm not going to care. So God sees beforehand what's going to happen, and God could have said, "Not my problem. I gave you the command." I made it as easy as I could on you. I told you that death was the consequence. This is your bed. You lay in it. It's not my problem. But that's not what God did. No, look, look what it says. He said, but he, Christ, was manifest. Manifest. God saw the fallen man and he planned the remedy for sin before it ever happened. And in due time, Christ came and he put the plan into action. The word manifest is pointing us to the incarnation when he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you'll go back to Bethlehem and visit the babe in the manger, and if you'll follow his life fulfilling the law, and if you'll follow him to the cross and then through the empty tomb, and you say, why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did that. For you. That's why. He did it for 
you. That cross, that empty tomb, every bit of it is God making sure that you and I could be saved before He ever made the sun to shine, before He ever planted the first tree, before the first star ever twinkled. God was thinking of you. For you. Look, look, in, look at chapter 2 here real quick. I'll show you a verse that I was preaching through First Peter and, and, and got happy on this verse. Look at, look at First Peter 2. Look at verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, now, now stay with me for just a minute, all right? I'm King James through and through all the way to the core. In grammar, in grammar, when you have a statement and it could be left out and the statement still be grammatically and factually correct, then that extra statement is there for the purpose of emphasis. So you could read, I'm not trying to, you could read who bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's true. Factually and grammatically. But Peter adds who his own self bear our sins. His own self, those three words inserted in the text are inserted there for emphasis. The emphasis of the statement is that he did it by himself. He did it all alone. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his, of his image, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, by, by himself purged our sin. He did it by himself. I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I don't understand how he became sin for us and did not become a sinner. And we have to be careful when we're talking about this because we, our, our language has to be right. And I know that, that he became the guilt bearer, but he wasn't actually guilty because he didn't do the sin. And somehow he bore my sins in his own body and the Father punished him as the sin bearer. And I can teach a class on it, but when I walk away... There's still something in my mind that, that's just a little bit bigger than, but, 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 but I, I don't, I don't fully understand it. How that he became the penalty for my sin on the tree. He became the curse for me. He became the serpent for me. He took the place of the guilty, though he was actually innocent. I don't understand it, but sometimes I sit by and I just marvel at it. How did he take my sin in his own body? I, I know the theology of it. I, I, I know the doctrine of it. But every lie, every murder, every fornication, every act of homosexuality, every perverted thing, that God took it and put it in his body. And God the Father judged him as though he had done those things. Every lie, every falsehood, he drank the cup for me. He became the serpent on the tree for me. He became the curse for me. I'm not trying to be sappy and Joel Osteen like, but he is for me. He, he knows, but he cares. He cares. Napoleon Bonaparte, when he was um, emperor of France, he was fighting a lot of wars trying to spread the empire. And, and they had so many battles that they didn't have enough men to fight in the wars. And so they had a conscription, kind of like, kind of like uh, 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 like a draft. And every man in France had to sign up for the conscription to, to be conscripted in the battle when they called you in order to be a citizen of France. And, and there was no exceptions. Now, now you could, under dire circumstances, get somebody to take your place. But if your name came up, if your number came up, then you or somebody had to go. 
Well, one day, the officers came to a man's house, knocked on his door. And they said, sir, called his name, said, you have been conscripted to go fight in this particular battle. And this gentleman said, well, um, he said, I can't go. He said, um, the reason is I'm already dead. They said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, I'm, 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 according to law, I'm, I'm dead. They said, we don't understand. He said, three years ago, I was conscripted to go to battle. He said, I just got married, just had my first child. And he said, I was getting ready to go. But he said, I had a friend that offered to go in my place because he was single. And so he was going to take my place. And, and so my friend went in my name and in the battle he died. But he died in my name. So according to the law, I'm, I'm already dead. They, they appealed it to Napoleon himself. And he looked at it. He said, well, the man can't die twice. According to the law, he's already dead. Somebody, somebody has died in his place and died in his name. I'm glad tonight that I don't ever have to die for my sins because somebody has already died in my place. God cares. Now, I know the doctrine. I, I know the doctrine. Let me, let me bring it down into the practical quickly, quickly. God knows and God cares not just for you to be saved and just to leave you alone, but God cares for you right now. As a father cares for his child, God cares for you. That's what the statement is telling me. If he cared enough to save you, then I think he cares enough to keep you. If he cared enough to meet your greatest need, why don't you think he'd take care of your lesser needs? You go back to Calvary, look at that bloodstained cross, and here's what it says. God cares. God knows God cares. I'm done. Here's the third truth that's in this text. God can. Would you look at verse 21? Who by him do believe in God, watch this, that raised him up from the dead. You know anybody else that can do that? Do you know anybody else in the human or the supernatural realm that can bring somebody back from the dead. Do you know anybody who has the power to call into the grave and demand that death release its hold on its prisoner and bring that person out of the grave? It tells you that God knows and God cares and God can. There have been times in my life when I cried for somebody and I wished that I could help them. And most times that I counsel somebody, I usually end up saying very weakly, I'll pray for you. But that's about all that I can because most times that somebody comes to me with their problem, there is nothing that I can do to help them. But God can. You know why you can put your faith and hope in Him? Because He can. You say, can what? Whatever you need him to. If he can speak life back into the dead. If he can raise his son from the grave. If even death is powerless to stop him. Then I promise you that he can take care of your problem too. He can meet your need. He can answer your prayer. He can solve your problem. God can. There's a style of argument in the Bible. It's called, it's called the greater to the lesser. And the argument is, is that if the greater is true, then the lesser would be included in that as well. 
If he can do the great things and all the little things, then that's, that's just assumed. I, I'll show it to you. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Here, here's the argument. Look, look at Matthew chapter 6, if you would. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 25. You, you know these verses. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you should eat, or what you should drink, nor yet for your body, what you should put on. It's not the life more than the meat and the body and the raiment. Behold the fowls of the air. Now watch, here's the great thing. For they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? The birds of the air are fed by God. That's pretty big, isn't it? See, how does God do that? I tell you how God does that. You go through the McDonald's drive-thru. And you say, I want two cheeseburgers with no onions and no mustard. Now, you already know there's going to be either mustard or onions on that cheeseburger. You pull out into the road knowing I should have checked this before I pulled out of the parking lot. And you unwrap the cheeseburger and sure enough, it's got onions and mustard on it. You gotta be kidding me. I just asked for a cheeseburger with no mustard and no onion. How hard is that? I mean, and you chunk it out the window. God is feeding his birds is what he's doing. <laughs> You just bought dinner for some of his fowl. If God can do the big thing, then don't you think God can do the little thing? Look at verse 28. Why take you thought for raiment, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? If God can clothe the field with the tulip and the grass and the flower, then don't you think God can put some clothes on you? If the bigger is true, if the greater is true, then the lesser is true as well. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. What should we say then to these things? If God be for us, then who can be against us? He that spared not his own son. That's the greater thing. How shall he not spare all things for us? If he can do the greater thing, he can do the lesser thing as well. God can give you the big thing. God can give you the little thing. It might be that God brings healing. It might be that God gives you grace to bear the healing. I was preaching several months ago. Uh, Illinois, I believe it was. In, Indiana, Illinois, I was preaching. Morning services, had my phone with the hardly ever do. Phone kept ringing, man, in my church. After it kept ringing several times, I knew it was serious. Stepped out in the parking lot of the church. Called him back. and I've told this story several times, and they don't mind me telling it. Brother Billy, you call me. What's going on? He said, you need to pray for Ruth Ann. He said, we just got back from the doctor. She's expecting, of course, several months along. And he said, the doctors are detecting some very serious health issues. It's amazing that that little baby's still in the wound. He said, um, they, they, they know that there are at least three holes in the heart. And, and the stem cord connecting the right and the left part of the brain is missing. And, and he, he went on to it. Long, long, dark road ahead. If there is ever a young couple in our church 
with grace. It is Billy and Ruth Ann. If, if there's ever a couple in our church that deserves all the blessings of God, it is that couple. We prayed. I cried. That's all I can do. That's all I can do. There's not one thing I can do for that baby. So as the months progressed, as she got further along, I kept contact. He kept me updated every time there was doctor's visits and hospital visits. And I know that God can bring that baby out without one physical problem. I know God can also work a miracle and work a work in their heart and give them the grace. God, God can work a miracle in the heart of the baby or God can work a miracle in the heart of the parents. She's had the baby. Baby's in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night and Wednesday night. The holes in the heart, the holes in the heart, I don't know what happened to them, but, but they, just, they just went away. Ain't nothing wrong with the heart of the baby. Everything's just fine there. Stem cord, um, there, there are some problems there. Certainly not as severe as they thought it was going to be. Going to be some developmental issues maybe, just, just kind of slow developmentally. Certainly not what we thought in the parking lot of that first doctor's visit. And I'm just saying to you tonight that God can do a miracle in the baby or God can do a miracle in your heart, but either way, God can. God knows. If before the foundation of the world, God could look through time and he could see the greatest problem of sin and say, I've already got a plan for it. If he knew that, I tell you, he already knows what's in your tomorrow. You've never informed God of your situation. You've talked to him about it, but you've never told him about it because he already knew. And God cares. If he cares enough to send his son to this earth and die on that cruel cross, if he cares enough to manifest his son for you and I, he cares about the little things too. And God I don't know what you're praying for. I don't know what miracle you need. I don't know what situation that you can't solve. But God can. If he can cancel death, empty out the grave, then whatever's coming to your life Friday, God has an answer for him. I'm not trying to give you a pep talk. I'm not trying to tell you I just feel like something good's about to happen tomorrow. I I, I don't believe that. But I'm trying to say that this great salvation that you and I have, it's not just for heaven. It's for living. It's for trusting Him now. And if you can't rest in Him, I have nothing else to offer you. If you can't lean on His understanding, I don't have any other words. Does Jesus care? My heart is pained. Too deeply for mirth or song. As the burdens press and the cares distress. And the way goes weary and long. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. And when the days are dreary and the long nights weary, I know that my Savior cares.